And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. MotoGP 2022 is riveting this year. We've had five winners from seven Grand Prix so far. Enea Bastianini has won three of those on a year-old Ducati and is within touching distance of the leader of the title chase, the reigning world champion, Fabio Quattararo, with Alessio Spargaro on the Aprilia right in there, just four points off the overall lead. We do have to remind ourselves that Spargaro is on a bike that only had its very first podium at Silverstone, well, last autumn. It's looking very good as we go to Mugello this weekend. But first, we've got something new for our podcast here with The Race. We've got your questions that we are going to answer because you guys have sent in the voice messages to podcasts at the-race.com and we've got 10 of them to go through here now. Toby Moody, I'm here with Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunshi. And without further ado, gentlemen, I think we're going to go straight into the questions. Here is our first one. Hi there, Dream Team. This is uh, Dan from Sweden. Are we judging young riders a little bit too fast? Uh, if you look at, uh, like, Dovizioso, for example, how I don't know if he was a late bloomer, but it took him some time for him to get the right equipment, the right bike, and so on. And it all ended up uh, for him as a title contender. Unless you count this season, but I don't. Thanks. Thank you, Dan, for being our first person to ask a question with our podcast. Good good question to start with. I love the expression, a late bloomer. You're absolutely right. I mean, Davizioso, he came into MotoGP on the Scott Honda. He was a bit, you know, there and thereabouts, but plodded on. And um, yeah, uh, ended up at Repsol Honda and ended up at Works Ducati and knocked on the door and nearly won a world championship, took the championship fight to the very last race of 2017. It was a bit of a long shot, but yeah, certainly a late bloomer. Val, do you want to go first about us maybe judging the younger riders, the newer riders too quickly sure. in this day and age? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, Dan, thank you for, for the Dream Team moniker. Probably the, the nicest thing the three of us have heard. Um, yeah, uh, you're right. You're obviously right. But that's, you know, that's the brutal nature of top-level international sport and particularly MotoGP. Uh, if, if everybody got the time that even their junior career deserved, like certainly, I think Dovicioso is probably, it's definitely not the only example, but he's, he's also probably not the, stark, the starkest example because he wasn't like... A no hoper in the beginning like he was decent right away and there are some MotoGP guys who struggle in the beginning and only then turns out that there's something special my like the example I really like right now for instance is Bagnaia's first season at Ducati was just not very good at all it was you know there were flashes here and there but he it didn't look super convincing to the point where I think we had some questions over whether or not 
he'd have a good place for himself in, in MotoGP entirely going forward. And now he's a Ducati factory rider who has won a bunch of races. Um, it's just, you know, the turnover is really high. It is, it, is, it is so high. There are so many good riders in Moto2 and Moto3 who are coming up and impressing the levels really high. And there's not really that many alternate avenues for riders to go to to prove themselves to maybe reassert their claim to to MotoGP, usually you're probably one and done. So you you go through I don't know like six years combined of Moto two, Moto three and Moto two, and you can impress there, and then you end up in MotoGP. And if you're just in the slightly wrong circumstances, it it could could end there and then. Like for instance, is there a package in MotoGP that can get the most out of uh, Alex Marquez? Potentially, would Alex Marquez have had a much better? His career is not over yet. He might stick around. So you know, excuse my fatalism, but um, would his career have been different if he started out in a Patronus Yamaha and wasn't blocked from that? Quite possibly. Um, just so many examples, and nobody, unfortunately, gets all the opportunities that maybe their CV deserves. But that's also that's just the nature of the championship, man. But yeah, we're we're absolutely very quick to judge, but also. That's just what MotoGP requires of us. So I, I'm going to jump in there because um, I have a, a sort of a twofold opinion on this. One very much mirrors Val's that, yeah, I, I do think that we don't give these young guys enough time. Um, but the other is that I, I actually think Davizioso is a really bad example of it because I think he was given enough time. Um, you know, the guy was a, was a Repsol Honda rider. He was a strong satellite rider. He was a good Tech 3 rider. And then he spent what feels like absolutely forever on a Ducati before he kind of inherited a very good bike. Um, and I, I think the bike perhaps made him look a little bit better than he was for a few years. Um, not taking anything away from his talent, obviously, because he is very fast. But I think that maybe another rider on that bike, like we, we then saw from Jorge Lorenzo, would have been a more consistent championship contender because while but but you say inherited yeah as opposed to was he was there instrumental he was, in helping mm, arguably he was there when Gigi Delinia arrived and then everything clicked into place from that point um more than anything else right um I just that's you know, that feels a little bit harsh I don't know because I you know I think that the the thing is he yeah he finished runner up in the championship. Um, three times, but let's not forget that one of those times was the single greatest points gap from first to second in the history of Grand Prix racing. He he wasn't Roger. challenging every time, you know. So yeah. yeah, I just I think he's he's a an example of someone who got more than his fair share of time, rather than someone like say uh, Tom Lutie. Moto 2 stalwart who got one season on an absolutely terrible bike and was kicked out the back of the paddock and never seen again in Moto GP. That's, that's nice and controversial to start this off. That's <laughs> <laughs> me, controversial. Yeah. I, I, I look at the question in another way, which is, you know, was he a late bloomer? Well, arguably, yes, he was. The late bloomer we have at the moment in our midst. Is Alicia Spargaro. He's in his eleventh MotoGP season, and he's and he's four points off the championship lead. It's an it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. And Simon, you touched on it. Uh, the last edition was it the edition before that we've had? You know, sometimes you need to go into a dip. You need to fall out of love with it. You need to be angry with the sport to fall back in love with it, even more so than you've done before. 
and in my view, that's the perfect view of where Alacious Bargaro and Aprilia are right now. Yeah, but you don't you don't get to be anonymous anymore. And I think, uh, honestly, my feeling is that the kind of second season that Alesh had with Suzuki back in 16, was it? I think in modern MotoGP, that's almost less survivable. Like, that's the kind of season that can easily end up with you just out of the Premier class because a team would rather take a punt on Aaron Connect. Because, well, we'll loop back. We'll loop back to this with future questions. But basically, you, you just you don't get to be like anonymous anymore. You don't get to just trudge around and wait for your moment or wait for your package. There's a lot of guys who are have proven to be really, really good on bikes who will not get that chance. They will not get it, and that's that's a reality that we have to face up with and recognize, but also you know accept because that's that's part and parcel of having MotoGP be as good as it is right now. It's all about the now. It's all about the now. That's prototype racing for you. Uh, next up, we've got a question a little bit closer to home here in the UK. Hi, guys. My name's Duncan. I'm from Glasgow, although I brought the English accent with me. Absolutely love the podcast. Um, just got a couple of quick questions. First one's just on the rider market. Um, there's been a lot of chat uh, about, obviously, the caliber of rider available since Suzuki uh, announced their withdrawal. One sort of team that's not in the discussion so much is the LCR Honda squad. Um, is it almost a dead cert that Ayagura and Jack Miller will get those two seats? Just seems shocking to me, given the, the caliber of rider that's on the market, potentially. Um, and that's in MotoGP and Moto2. Um, is there, are those sort of seats up for grabs or is it pretty much locked in? The second question is that regarding, obviously, you guys covered really well the uh, full start of MotoGP Unlimited. Um, and then obviously, seen that it's not going to be retained for a second season this year, at least. Um, Adorna equally pissed off <laughs> about this. Is there, what are they saying behind the scenes? Or have they just sort of got egg on their face as well? Are they partly to blame for the shocking mess of the release. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you, Duncan, for your two questions. Let's start off at the top with that LCR question. Uh, Simon, they haven't really been in the chit-chat over the last few days post-Suzuki apparently leaving, although we're still yet to know that, by the way, at the time of doing this podcast. Um, LCR, where are things at with that? LCR, of course, essentially the, uh, the satellite Honda team, of course. Yes. Um, thank you very much for the question, Duncan. Um, so uh, the way that the LCR structure kind of works, uh, there's one side of the garage that has a, a sort of a, a rotating selection of sponsors that is Lucio Checanello's to kind of place a rider into. And then there's the other side, which is essentially a seat that he runs for Honda, uh, which comes with the Edimitsu sponsorship who are uh, like the Japanese equivalent of, of Shell or BP, in case you're not familiar with them. Um, that side of the garage, I think it's it's all but certain now that it's going to be Ayagura's, uh, unless Takanakagami can pull out something absolutely spectacular in the next few races, but we've been waiting five seasons to see that, and the guy still doesn't have a podium. Um, so I, I can't see anything really happening that's going to save him now. So, um, so yeah, that... that will probably happen there and it makes sense um nakagami's had his time agura's doing great things in moto 2 why not take a bet on some young talent and see what happens 
the other side of the garage, Alex Marquez has basically been told he needs to be consistently top 10 with a, a few top fives. He's not doing that. And it's going to be very difficult for anyone to justify um, his seat remaining beyond uh, beyond this year. We know that Lucio Cecanello is in talks with um, with with Aki Ayo, actually, who runs KTM's Moto2 and Moto3 team, but who also is the personal manager of Jack Miller. Um, so th- there was a conversation there. Beyond that, I kind of get the impression that no one's really too in too much of a hurry to take a risk in a Honda, especially a satellite one, because look at how they're performing this year. When when even the great Mark Marquez can't make the bike work, do you really want to be the guy that gives it a shout, gives it a try? Yeah, yeah, ultimately, um, I don't think it's by any means nailed on to be uh, Miller and Agora. Agora probably is, but Miller, it sounds like KTM's a possible option and the Ducati bridge isn't totally shattered yet so that might might still come to fruition but what the alternatives are isn't clear Alex Marquez just needs to be doing better to to warrant an extension that much is clear um if he does do better great if he doesn't do better then it opens up a whole world of weird and wacky possibilities again could try connect could could look at some other Moto2 riders like I don't know take a punt on Fermin Aldeguer or something if you're allowed to, how old is he? I don't think you're allowed to. You, Yeah, not yet. So scratch that. But you can take a punt on, I don't know, Augusto Fernandez if KTM doesn't want him. Um, could try to see if Paul es- Espargaro is ousted out of the Repsol Honda team and offer him something and LCR Honda if he's not sick of that bike yet. A lot of possibilities. Uh, not clear who it'd be attractive to, but you know it's a it's a pretty good MotoGP ride. I know Honda's had its its problems, but ultimately there will be takers. Of of course there will, of course there will. You know, as you say, Ayagura nailed on. The domino that has to fall first is Miller being retained or not at Works Ducati. That's that's we got to wait for that ship to leave before anybody else can follow. So that's the first part of Duncan's question. The second part is regarding MotoGP Unlimited. That's on Prime, uh, Amazon Prime TV, uh, eight uh, hour long editions of behind the scenes footage from in MotoGP 2021. Uh, thanks for the uh, for the insight about that and and asking about whether or not it's going to be retained for going forward. Uh, Ardor annoyed by it. He he asked about it not not continuing into 2023 from the 22 season where we are now. Uh, yeah, the release. It was a complete mess, I'm afraid to say. You must never get your first step into a bold new arena wrong. And they did get it wrong. Why was it wrong? Is because they gave uh, they all the MotoGP riders were being filmed in, in their in their native language, but they'd put an actor's voice over the top. So Juan Mia sounded like Billy Bob voiceover actor from Toronto or something. I don't know. It was unwatchable. Uh, there was, I watched, I think, probably like you two, a minute. I couldn't stand it. I, I, I was like, no, that's that's the sport that I've been in for a quarter of a century. I can't, no, 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 you're ruining it. And there was a bit of a kickback and they had to stop it, 
reload it onto the digital platform with subtitles only, only, but in the natural international sound. Um, somebody somewhere signed that off. Was it the production company? Was it Dorna? Knowing Dorna as I do, nothing goes out without them having the final word. I've worked for them uh, directly. I've worked with them for TV stations, and I've worked alongside them as part of a Grand Prix team. They are very strict on what goes out televisually. Somebody signed that off, and it was the wrong decision. Um, but it got it got sorted. Uh, why is it not allowed to be viewed in Australia, Asia, Latin America? That eludes me as well. Um, I think some of the editing could have been done a bit different, but we've all got different creative uh, opinions about some minutiae. Um, uh, yeah, I can go into why we saw the results ceremony at the beginning and not the end of the eight-hour series. You don't see the result of a football match in the highlight programme at the beginning, do you? So I thought that was a little bit odd. Um, other things that that bugged me, but in my eyes, um, they could have done a bit more in the heart of a team with the mechanics, with the boys. Simon, you and I have worked in a Grand Prix team, and there's some good there's some good footage in there with the bloke who drives the truck, the guy does the tires, the guy does the gearbox. There's some characters in garages and that can shine through as well, not just focusing on the superstar guys that are living in Andorra or Monaco or, or, or Switzerland or wherever. Uh, I still say a lot of people must go back 20 years and see what Mark Neal did with Faster as a documentary 20 years ago, because it's still the structure of it. Never mind the subjects, the structure of it still stands the test of time. Um, I still can't get my head around, Simon, why it's not being recommissioned. Um, or Val, do you want to go first? I, ju I, just, I just can't believe it. No, I just... The, the, like, is there fury over Adorna? Obviously, there's fury over at my end because I don't think there was anything wrong with the product. But it's like, uh, any any video gamer might might understand this sort of simile. You have a really good, perfect, high budget game, and it crashes every two minutes. Basically, that's the that's the equivalent. You have a fantastic product that people weren't able to enjoy. I can't imagine there's anything more frustrating than that. The the, the more I've watched it, the more. I've come to the conclusion that the product wasn't actually that good either. Um, mm. I think it, it was... Do you want to rewrite my review on the site? Because <laughs> I, I stand by. I think we, we get... Yeah, no, I, I know where you're coming from. But I think that the, the more I think about it um, from a few steps back, um, it, it was just very disjointed. It wasn't an easy way to bring new fans into the sport, which, which you know, I've completely formed this opinion over the last few months that the whole point of it was actually to try and hook people who stopped watching the sport because it went to pay-per-view TV again. It was to try and lure those people back in. It wasn't to do an F1 drive to survive, attempt to bring new fans in, anything like that. Um, if that was the attempt, then it feels spectacularly because it's just, it's good television, sure, but it's just not engaging enough if you're not interested in motorsport. But you, you summed something up quite early on, Simon, like, even in the first day after it was out, you saw things that you'd heard about and then they were confirmed. It's it's not all bad. Let's get that very no, clear. No, no, I want to put my line in the sand. Not. It was it, There were some bits that were really good. The behind-the-scenes stuff with Banyaya, I really enjoyed. His sister going to eat and pasta with his family and everything. I also learned, and I touched on this last week, I also learned if I was a team principal from another team, 
I now know what other riders do in other garages. I'm not employing him anymore. He's an idiot. Which is actually um, something that Jorge Martin picked out to me as one of his favourite bits of it, that he learned what other riders do in terms of their physical recovery and stuff like that. But the, the problem is, so after every Grand Prix, MotoGP release uh, behind-the-scenes footage that's like four minutes long, of normally of the journey from winner's enclosure to the podium to the press yeah, conference. In a, in a it, SUV. Yeah, and yeah. the documentary kind of felt like eight 45-minute episodes of that. That's true. The, there was... But it's really good footage. It I've is really been... good footage, but it doesn't build the characters. It doesn't build the... And and I, I think that's why it hasn't been commissioned, because the people who've watched it so far have been MotoGP fans. And it wasn't made for MotoGP fans. So what's triggered it to not be recommissioned? Data? Viewing figures? I, I... Well, they, they, they claim... That, well, Dorna claim that they don't have viewing figures yet, which the fact that they're claiming something so bold means that they've had viewing figures and they're really not good. This is this is Amazon we're talking about. It's a company whose main like main business is not selling things online or streaming videos. It's data services. Correct. Amazon know what's going on with it. It's called an algorithm, and, they, and why you get suggestions. It's exactly. simple. Exactly. And the only reason why it hasn't been commissioned for a second season is because the numbers obviously haven't been what they wanted to be. That's not good. As for, That's not good. As for Dorna being angry at it, Dorna are complicit in it. Less, you know, Dorna, Dorna, two very senior figures from Dorna executive produced it. They knew what was coming before any of the rest of us. So I don't see how they can be too angry about it. But, you know, the fact that the fact that they're deeply frustrating backup plan for 2022 in lieu of not doing another season is to commission another Mark Marquez documentary says a lot about what way they operate. It's, you know, we're we're flogging a dead horse. In some regards, we're doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result. The documentary they should be filming now, even to make a one-hour or a two-hour documentary, is Bastianini and Grassini. Of course it is. Or it's Alicia Spagano. Yeah, yeah. Underdog, of all underdogs, you aren't being rude, Simon, don't react, you know what I mean, could win title. Um, um, So this is a a little bit of a tangent, um, but it kind of explains what I'm thinking here. Um, as you know, I'm a massive cycling fan and the Giro d'Italia is on at the minute where Mark Cavendish is racing and doing very well, but he's the second, it's the second tier race to the Tour de France. He's the second tier sprinter in the team. There's a big rivalry between him and the other sprinter about who's going to the Tour de France. I was listening to another podcast earlier where they speculated that maybe the reason that all of this rivalry is being built is because Amazon or because Netflix are currently shooting a Mark Cavendish documentary. So like, And it's, when you think about it in that context, all of this drama is something that has been created by the team because it's marketing gold. Yeah, but this is a dangerous slope. But we've got, no, no, I know. But but the point I'm making, the point I'm trying to make is we have all of that already with Aprilia and there's no one filming it. And Bastianini. And it just Uh, feels like... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It just feels like it's such a wasted opportunity. At the the, there will be footage at dawn. There's a lot of cameramen in that pit lane. There's a, there's a lot of that behind the scenes GoPro stuff. But yeah, there are. But 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 we don't want to see. But I don't no. want to see the guys walking mm. from the podium to the press conference. I want to see the contract negotiations, which is what we were told would happen in season two. Um, mm. yeah. And the and the tears from the team when they cross the line and out the back of the truck and when Bastianini 
fell off the other day and and didn't score decent points. Sorry, he didn't fall out. He didn't score decent points. And yeah, but there's a really big opportunity there that he could do it. It could be, as I said last week, a Braun Grand Prix in 2009. I. I really do not share your guys' enthusiasm that Enea Bastianini or Alessia Spargaro could be the mainstream appeal that MotoGP needs. As much as I obviously like their stories being a MotoGP journalist, it's I, I don't see but, it. But then after season one, after season before season one of Drive to Survive, who would have said that about Gunther Steiner? Yeah, yeah, but drivers Drive to Survive is bad. Uh, that's no oh. It's it's good at what it it's does. It's good at so. what it does. Look at Miami. It's good Look at, at Miami. what it does. It is good at what it does if what it does yeah. is make me very cranky and a broken record. But yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, the, and the problem is that MotoGP were trying to do the same thing and didn't. And that's the problem. They created the metric for what they were measured against. The, 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 the drive to survive thing has slash hasn't worked. Make your judgment after the next statement. That all of the tickets for Miami Formula One sold out in two hours, and the VIP hospitality was thirteen thousand dollars over three days, and they all sold out. No, it's worked. I, I know, but we're not. It's worked. We're not suits. We're we're three. We're not suits. Yeah, we're three journalists. We're three t-shirts. Yeah. You know, we don't. <laughs> I don't really care about the corporate side of how many more zeros it makes to some corporate guy up in wherever. I want a good, worthwhile documentary product, and. Unlimited was much better in that regard than Drive to Survive, and I, I, I don't want to. I'm too. Life's too short to play the marketing game at this point. I think I'm more angry at the launch at the fact they had they should have put their best foot forward with this version that doesn't compromise the integrity of the championship. Duncan from Glasgow, I think you've owned this podcast already with that question about MotoGP Unlimited. So, on that bombshell, let's just stand back a minute. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As we continue with our questions from you guys out there listening to our podcast, our next one on the list is here. Hi, fellas. Hope you're all keeping well. Uh, this is James from Ireland, and I have a question about the talent lines um, coming through into MotoGP in the lower classes, like Moto3. Um, I was listening to the Le Mans free practice on Friday, and um, it was very interesting to hear Michael Laverty when he was doing Moto2 and Neil Hodgson on the MotoGP. Talking about Casey O'Gorman, the young 14-year-old um, Irish lad who's racing in the Rebel Rookies and also in Junior GP for Michael Laverty's Vision Track team. And they were talking about how you know talent like Casey might get um, caught up in the next couple of years from moving up to you know maybe Motor 3 or the Junior GP Championships due to the new age restrictions introduced last year by the FAM, which are very good for young rider safety. 
Um, but they were talking about how Casey, you know, 14 might not be able to, you know, might get caught for a few years in the junior championships. I'm just wondering if that might, you know, have any implications for young talents and young riders like Casey who might get stuck in the junior system for a few years, the current ones, and they might sort of drop out of the sport due to, you know, not being able to keep up with the financial commitments of, you know, driving around Europe, you know, going to these junior junior races. Um, I wonder if some talent might be lost or they might get caught up due to, you know, young older talent coming through in the next few years due to the age restriction. Um, just be interesting to get your take on that. And also, do you have any predictions for who might replace Suzuki um, in the MotoGP grid? Um, and yeah, thanks very much. Keep up the good work on the podcast. Love it. Thank you. Thank you, James, for that. Uh, two questions there. First one about uh, Casey O'Gorman and the system of getting essentially onto the MotoGP grid. Uh, Val, do you want to take that one? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for the question, James. You got me to look into Casey's case, if you will. And I hadn't realized quite how impressive it has been. And he's, he's had a really, really decent start to life in, in Red Bull Rookies Cup. And I'm not putting on an intentional Irish accent there, by the way. I don't know. I did like a life thing. It was really weird. My apologies. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, you're right in that it, it could create a, a logjam. It hasn't like we don't really have any equivalent sort of situation there. There's not been there have been age limits in car racing changed quite recently. You know, obviously the Max Verstappen case has cut off arrival to f1 for persons under the age of 18 and there have been some age limits lower down but no such thing as a blanket age 18 for something as as low down the ladder as moto 3 as good as moto 3 is but it's also it's good i like it i like if we don't even talk about the the safety aspect at all i just i just like it there's because it helps develop the other categories that are needed near Moto Moto Three or equivalent to Moto Three or slightly below Moto Three by keeping the keeping basically the the understandable greed of those higher up the ladder from just propelling ta talent upwards. I think th there's no talent problem in Moto GP or Moto Two or Moto Three. So. I'm I'm not really fearful of a logjam, and I'm not really fearful of careers ending because I think if everybody just takes it a little bit more easily in terms of progression, that can only be a good thing. At the same time, it is it is accurate. You are correct that sort of spending a few years at the same level because you're age restricted can be a problem. It it it's probably a hard thing to sell to sponsors. It's probably expenditures that you didn't really plan on until you get to the point where you're actually paid by somebody to race. It's a it's a complicated question. It is a, a very, very interesting knock-on. I'm not so worried for, for Casey again, because I think he's one of the probably one of the front runners to be the next British face of well, British. Oh, shouldn't have said that. Uh, uh, Simon's I'm, I'm face. I'm so Simon's sorry. face. I am so sorry. Islander? I don't know what, what word would I use? Is this a is this an international incident? Raider from the British. Okay. I think the word the, the, you need. I think the word you need, Val, is edit. <laughs> nah, you know, I'm sticking with it. Uh, but yeah, um, he's. I think he's got appeal to Dorna, so I think he'll be taken care of if he continues to perform like that. But it is it is a potential problem for some riders, definitely. But at the same time, it had to happen at some point. I think this easing of the of the logjam and this is artificial, but it 
sort of does the job a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think that the benefit that Casey O'Gorman has in particular, um, Toby, I'm going to make you feel really old here because I've just checked, obviously, with that first name, um, just a little bit of the timeline. And when Casey O'Gorman was born on the 6th of August 2007, Casey Stoner had just won the US Grand Prix at Indianapolis and was 44 points clear of Valentino Rossi en route to his first championship. Um, so we know why he's called Casey. Um, I'd work that one out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that he's actually got the benefit of um, of being at such a young age that it's not going to make. He, he's at the right age. He's at the age that I'd want to be at if I were him, because uh, he can still go to Spanish Championship at sixteen. Um, it's a Junior World Championship to give it its proper title, which is the year after next, which is reasonable. Um, so he'll do another year in Red Bull Rookies. And then he's on the career path that he would have been on. Um, it's only going to really set him back maximum one year. And I think, like you say, he's he's talented enough that the finances won't be an issue for one year at least. So he'll he'll get through that without it being too much of a hindrance. And it is a very short-term problem as well. It's a problem that will only affect sort of the class of 2007 and 2008. And then once the, moto, once the age limits correct themselves with the, the new rules... It'll filter down, and and in you know in a few years' time, it just means that riders will hopefully start a little bit later, and uh, progress at a slightly older age through the ranks anyway, and and maybe actually have a year or two to enjoy being actual children a little bit more because it's deeply deeply frustrating to hear a twelve year old talk talking about their training plan. Yeah, I agree completely, and also I'm frantically searching for the age limit in Junior Moto Two. And I'm, I think it's 16. So if you're like, if you're a total yeah. stud in the former Spanish, now Junior Moto 3, if you're like a total badass, then you go to if, Junior Moto 2. And, or if you're six foot two. Sure. Yeah. At a young age. And then, you know, because that path is now proving more viable, I guess, than ever before with the two speed up boys, uh, yeah. Fermin Aldegar and Alonso Lopez. Both looking quite uh, good in in regular Moto Two, and a handful of others like Augusto Fernandez. Augusto Fernandez, yeah. So there's there's ways, there's yeah. ways. Yeah. And and just to to touch on the last bit of James's question, uh, Suzuki won't be replaced. There, there's no manufacturer ready to step into MotoGP. None. Shortest shortest answer of the year. Simon Patterson, Esquire. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, thank you, James. Uh, the next question we've got is from Central Europe. Hi, my name is Lan and I'm from Slovenia. And my question is whether Mark Marcus is going to be a world champion again. And also whether he's ever going to change the manufacturer. Thank you and bye. Thanks, Lan. Uh, short and to the point. Uh, Val, do you want to kick this one off? Yep. Uh, thanks, Lan. I had a whole bit prepared where I was going to say like Zdravo in Slovenian or something like that, but that doesn't feel right after I just called people from Ireland British. So we're just gonna we're just gonna move on from there. Is Mark Marquez going to win another world title? I think so, probably. But I'm so- okay. Let's just do the. Should we do a bit of a poll here? Val says he thinks so. Simon, no. No, me. Oh dear, casting vote. No. Okay. Well, th- this is legally binding, so. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but anyway, why I think so is because I think he's still reasonably young, and 
because of what I saw at the end of last year. But I'm certainly a hell of a lot less convinced by that than I was a few months ago. Not to mention a few, uh, not 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 to say a few years ago, obviously. Um, but I still, yeah, I still feel it's possible. Will he change manufacturer? I think we've had this sort of debate on one of the episodes. I don't remember when because life has been weird. But I definitely remember that I said then that I expected there was quite a possibility, and I still do, especially if he never quite gels with this new style of Honda, or if somebody like Mir comes in and wrestles control of the team away from him, or anything like that, or if he just gets curious. You know, we all want to know sometimes. Maybe maybe he'll want to, to have a go on a, on a KTM or on a Ducati. I think he's young enough to where it's possible. So yeah, I, I I'd say yes to both. Simon, do you think he's gonna ride for somebody else? No, Honda ambassador for life. Um, I would wouldn't even be surprised if, based on the absolutely huge contract that they offered him a few years ago, the one that keeps him up to the end of twenty twenty four, that there's maybe even an option meaning he never leaves now because they effectively took the highest priced salary on the grid and they doubled it for him for four years. Um. I would imagine that's a lifer deal. When you say option, do you mean like unilateral that Honda can exercise it? Uh, um, I as far as I know that there is something of Valentino Rossi's last Yamaha, like return to Yamaha contract that said he would retire as a Yamaha yeah. rider. So that shouldn't be legal. I don't like that. Don't like that at all. I I I I mean, if both sides, I would imagine. No, no, I I don't think it's a unilateral. Yeah, I don't think it's something that they forced upon Mark. I think it's something that he's he's agreed to. Because oh, he yeah, knows, yeah, yeah. he knows that he can, he can be, you know, he can fly around on Honda private jets to Honda events and cut Honda ribbons with Honda scissors and get paid for it for the next fifty years. But my goodness me, they're very good engineered scissors. They're the best in the world. Oh, made of unobtainium. <laughs> I don't know about that. But but only Mark. <laughs> only Mark has the Honda scissors. Yeah. But they only work with Mark Marquez. Yeah. With Flat his other arm feeling. Yeah, uh, I think it's a crying shame that he might not ever ride for a another manufacturer because it's the McDuan box. Uh, McDuan went down a road of talking to Yamaha and we all got very excited in the paddock one summer of, oh, this could happen. He might just do it. But of course, it was John McGilvray, his manager, potentially whipping up a couple of journalists and whipping up the whipping up the, uh, the size of the check. Um, the deal that could have been done that he stays there forever hence the astronomical amount of money, apparently, adds up. Total sense. Remember the last MotoGP rider to retire as a Honda lifer? That'll be Danny Pedrosa. And since his retirement, he suddenly sees being a Honda lifer because he raced for KTM once, but that counts. And, 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 and Casey went back to Ducati. Yeah, so... Yeah. But, but, but neither of them were ever ending Mark Marquez. Yeah, money. correct. And arguably the previous Honda lifer before that was McDoon. And he's lifing. And who, he's was, li- who, who was, in fact, the launch customer for Honda's private jet. Yeah, yeah. Through his private jet and, chartering and he, business. And he's still so, Honda. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Interesting yeah. one. Yeah, good one, good one. Thank you, Lan. Uh, next question. It's uh, not a million miles away from where Simon is. Hi, guys. Uh, big fan of the show. I just want to ask what you think will happen with Raul Fernandez next season. Obviously, we saw last year he was an incredible talent, and we know that Yamaha were looking for him. And with Yamaha maybe not having a satellite team or uh, whatever will be going on there, um, I just wonder will he stay? Will he stay at Tech Three or will KTM look to get him in ahead of Oliveira? 
and uh, will they promote Acosta or will they leave Acosta in Moto2? Thank you. That's from Luke in Dublin. Thanks, Luke. Uh, now, Val, you had an article on the site a couple of days ago, same but different, and it was touching on Remy Gardner's position at Tech3. Just do a quick little review of what you wrote about, because it's quite similar, really, to what Luke's asking about regarding Raul Fernandez. Yeah, that, you know, what I wrote about that came out of uh, Gardner's general misery, not only during the Le Mans weekend, but through much of his rookie campaign so far, and the fact that KTM has ended up publicly admonishing Gardner's manager, uh, Paco Sanchez, who also happens to be Joan Mir's manager, uh, for making some fairly harsh comments about the quality of contracts KTM offers up. Uh, Gardner's uh, one plus one, so if KTM wants to keep him, theoretically it can unilaterally, as far as I understand, but talking uh, to Speed Week, uh, KTM's, uh, who was it? Was it Pit Byra? KTM's Pit Byra said that uh, if Remy didn't want to stay, then they wouldn't retain him and Remy might not want to stay and the same should theoretically apply to Raul even though I don't know what his what his contract situation is but as the question was specifically about Raul if the Yamaha option disappears then it's I mean it's hard to see what the obvious alternative for him is but it's just Raul has kept his cards really close to his chest to the point where while he has been fairly open about not being right now where he wanted to be, like he would have rather had that RNF Yamaha by the sounds of it. But it's sort of, it's hard to say whether how disillusioned he is with the KTM RC16 now that he's actually like properly tried it and ridden it. He's been banged up a lot. He's he's not been too audibly disgruntled, but he's not had a ton of reason to be massively happy. So honestly, I'm just, I'm just taking a punt here. Should try LCR Honda. Should ask Aprilia if they're interested in case that satellite team is migrating to Aprilia because that's a good satellite bike to have. But Tech Three might be okay. I don't think I don't think he's replacing Oliveira. Can't quite see that. Uh, yeah, I didn't think about Raul Fernandez. Is he might have wanted a Yamaha um, and he ended up on a KTM. Who knows what he really wanted when he put his leg over the bike in Qatar this year? But would you want a with you Yamaha? at the moment you know with hindsight on in which we all have a doctorate and a phd um hmm, be careful what you wish for isn't it dilemma i would because because they're like it's a similar level of competitiveness maybe a little bit worse but the with you yamaha doesn't launch you off the bike repeatedly every weekend and the rc16 seems to be doing exactly that to both remy and and raul who has already taken a big knocked to the head who has already had a big hand problem that's ruled him out of of two races uh can't be fun can't be enjoyable probably comes into his thinking can't be fun at all okay uh thank you luke from dublin hi producer johnny here interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about roan a clothes brand we think you'd like i don't know about you but finding clothes you like can be tough Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. 
is versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Okay, we're going to move on with our next question. We're going to Italy. Hi, I'm Marco from Italy. Is it true that Yamaha is developing a new V4 engine? In Italy, there are rumors about it. After all, the last two-stroke Yamaha engine was a V4. So, with the departure of Suzuki, will 2023 or 2024 be really the end of the inline-4 engines? Thank you. Grazie per la domanda, uh, Marco. Thank you for your question. Um, Where do we start with this one? Uh, Is that just a wild rumor, Simon? Um, Yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. I haven't heard anything about this. Um, It's it's something that Yamaha have traditionally resisted doing, and I completely understand why they've traditionally resisted doing it. Yamaha have spent what is it, 20, well, 20 seasons now since 2002, developing an inline four. They've built a very good inline four. And I don't see why you'd throw away 20 years of development to chase the tails of something else when you've literally just won the championship. And you're leading this one at the moment. And with limited yeah, exactly. testing time, how do you start a V4 project going? Exactly, exactly. And then there's this permanent rumour that Yamaha are building a V4 because the Yamaha bike is terrible, but the Yamaha bike's not terrible. The Yamaha bike is leading the championship. doing a really good job. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, the, 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 yeah, I, I don't understand why people are so fixated on the concept of the M1 being a terrible motorbike, because it's not, frankly. Um, I, I think that they have a bit of an issue at the minute with their rider lineup, um, and they have had for, for a while now, um, in that Franco Morbidelli is still not the Franco Morbidelli he used to be. Andrea Eddie Vizioso was an old man. And Darren Bender's a rookie that came directly from, from Moto3. You know, um, there's an article on the site at the minute from a couple of days ago talking to Andrea Eddie Vizioso, who says that he cannot re- reprogram his brain to ride the bike like Fabio Quattararo, but that the bike is a very good bike. Um, and, and so why would Yamaha build something new to fix a problem that doesn't exist? Plain and simple. Yamaha have maybe ironically fallen into the Honda pit of five years ago. They've got one rider who can ride no. their bike. Yeah, except Correct. they've done it accidentally yeah, yeah. and not on purpose. Exactly what that's paraphrasing Dovi basically. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm just, I'm just impressed that we got a question from Marco Bezecchi clearly sounding out his future. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yeah, you joke, but um, 
we had a Fabio Quadraro media debrief crashed at Le Mans by Luca Marini, who started asking questions to learn as much as he could to quote him. Yeah, yeah, good boy, good boy, yeah, good boy, good boy, good lad. Uh, grazie, Marco. Uh, our next question is further afield. The race. Hey, Mike Falcone here, calling from the United States of America, Pennsylvania. Uh, please, oh please, oh please, help me understand what the deal is with the Michelin front tire, the new one, the one that was supposed to be here in 2021, I think, before it was delayed, understandably, due to the pandemic. But now I hear people, I feel like people are talking about it being till 2025, and I don't get it. For Mandalika, they literally invented a new rear tire. They took an old carcass and new rubber or something like that, mushed them together, and they would have raced on that had they, had it not rained. Sure, people would have complained, but I don't get it. They say, oh, well, it needs to be tested first, but why can't they just make it like an extra front tire option on the weekends or something like that? Because while they say that the allocation is supposed to be locked down, I don't think it has been. Like, I know they've changed front tires and KTM has complained about there being an option that they liked. So front tires have already changed. Why can't there be another one? Like, what's going on? Uh, there's all this talk about people overheating front tires. Well, maybe it needs a stiffer carcass, which is what is supposed to be coming. I don't know. Do you know? I want to know. Help me understand. Thanks. So, uh, hey, Mike, um, good to hear your voice because we talk quite a bit on, on social media. Um, I, I, I'm not 100% sure we're on the same page regarding the new Michelin tire supposed to come in 2021. Um, I think they were to start development in 2021 just after the, the new front tire, which arrived in 2019 and caused all sorts of problems for all sorts of people. Um, a front tire is, is obviously, it's a lot more sensitive, so it takes a lot more time and effort which is part of the reason that there's a bit of a delay in getting it up and running. Um, and I, I spoke to Michelin at the weekend, uh, just passed about it. They would have quite liked to have had the new front tire ready for 2024, but it's just not possible because there's a, there's a distinct lack of time. Um, we have this year coming, the, the sort of, so this season leading into next season, we're going to have one day at Verlancia at the end of 2022. We're going to have three days, two days at Sepang at the start of the year, probably another three days somewhere else. And then that's it, straight into season. It's a the shortest amount of testing ever. And the problem is that unless people are told to go testing and specifically test tires, they won't do it. These guys all have new bikes to build. And if there's a new tire to be tried, then the only way they're going to try it is if they're forced to try it. So it just makes for angry people and bikes that they believe are not adequately being developed and it's a really difficult situation for michelin to be in the the smartest thing right now if i were michelin i'd be pushing MotoGP and dorna to put in a couple of monday tests in 2023 that are specifically for new tires where you're given eight new front tires and told you're not allowed to go home until you've used all eight of them to the point of destruction that that's the only way that they're they're gonna get things done any quicker um, the point of the new tyre, part of the point of the new tyre is to do things like uh, make it more sort of to work better with, with 
front pressure is it high raises and drops to cope with temperature is it raises and drops but the other problem that Michelin are facing is that all of this has been uh, kind of I think a lot of the problems they thought they had more time to deal with things that are emerging as problems but this sudden development of aerodynamics and ride height devices both front and rear is putting more and more stress on the front tire and leaving us in a situation where we need a new tire before there's one ready um, it'll be interesting to see if the absence of the front ride height devices next year alleviates at least some of the problems for some manufacturers. But um, yeah, I think that's they, they've been, I don't want to say caught short because it's motorsport and it's all about development. Um, but yeah, I think they, they didn't expect such a huge performance increase. Simon doesn't know what he's talking about with that those tires, and uh, you're right, uh, Mike. There was a different tire that was flown in for Indonesia this year, but ultimately, as you say, it poured with rain on race day, and and that wasn't entirely a new tire. In that, it was the new construct. It was the new compounds put on an old carcass from a few years ago. So it was a, a kind of a Frankenstein's monster. But the carcass, the construction of the tire, which is the the bit that takes all of the development, not the compound that just gets pasted on the top. That's the bit that needs the real engineering and the years of development, not the compounds. So it was easy to build that Frankenstein using sort of some stuff that was kicking around the back of the shed. Le shed. Um, thanks, Mike. Um, next up, we've got a question a little bit further up the M6 motorway from me here in the UK. Hi, Toby, Simon and Val. This is Phil in uh, Cumbria. Who do you think is the best development rider within the full-time MotoGP grid? Short and sweet, Phil. Uh, we like them like that. Um, we kind of had a chat about this before we pressed the big red record button, and I think Simon better go first. Alicia Spagaro. Followed by Alicia Spagaro and Alicia Spagaro. <laughs> because, 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 because he has now done a, a two different teams very successfully. Um, you know, he's taken, he took the Suzuki from a brand new entry to a winning bike, even if he wasn't the guy winning on it. And he's taken the Aprilia from an absolute no-hoper back of the grid to a title contender with him on board it. Um, I think that there are obviously guys in the grid who are very good at development. And don't get me wrong, Alej has been supported all the way through by teammates who've been very good at development as well. But I think uh, the fact that he's done it twice, the fact that he's doing it at the minute in such spectacular style, yeah, he's the guy for me. Yeah, um, Alex Rins is is my pick. Sort of a a similar situation in that he very much helped and spearheaded the development of a bike that another rider then won a championship on. Um, I think he's just you know he's he's proven himself as the focal point of that program after Suzuki lost face lost lost faith in Andrea Iannone. Once, once they did that, uh, leaning on Rins by the sounds of it helped him get back on track, and that bike's really good now. Here and now, with the riders that are on the grid, and we have had twenty-six of them race this year so far, including a wild card. Um, yeah, it's Alicia Spargaro. The test riders who are not racing—that's another discussion because then you're into the Gintolas and the Pedrosas and the and the Savadores, etc. But and the Bradles. But uh, on the grid, it's Alicia Spargaro. Um, 
I don't think there's much contest from us three, Phil. So I hope that answers your question. Next up, we're. I mean, there is much contest because I, I picked a different. <laughs> I picked a different person. There's definitely contest. I will fight <laughs> over this. I just have a complete sieve head. That's all. I've got any hair, so all the. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Rins. Yeah. 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 Okay. Apologies. Apologies. I'll uh, snap back into order with a question from Stateside. Hey guys, first time caller, long time fan. My name is Ronnie from Portland, Oregon in the USA, uh, avid MotoGP follower and always enjoy the Race MotoGP podcast. I had a question for you guys about your thoughts around um, the factory Ducati decision for next year. Specifically, I'm a huge Jack Miller and Pecco Bagnaia fan. I think that they are great teammates, and we've seen examples of that in the Prime series as well as throughout all of last year and into this year, how supportive they are of one another. Given Bagnaia's favor with Ducati, do you think there's a world in which he could advocate for the Ducati team to um, offer Jack an additional extension to his contract into 2023 for the factory seat? How much do you think uh, number one riders get to play influence on that decision? We see that a lot with Marquez, obviously with Honda. Um, I, I'm just curious what you think if, if Bagnaia's got that, that sway with factory Ducati. Love to hear back from you. Hope you're all doing well. Thanks so much. The land of the chainsaws, Ronnie. Can you tell that I used to be a trainee surgeon? Uh, Simon, how much sway do you reckon these lead riders have? So, uh, two-part answer. The first being, the first bit being, uh, I think maybe since Ronnie sent in his question, we've had a bit of a development in that Peko Bagnaya has basically openly come out and said that he's advocating for Jack Miller to be his teammate um, because he feels like He's someone he can work with. Um, that's obviously not gone down too well within Ducati with Enea uh, Bastianini saying it was because he was afraid to have a fast teammate. Nice little bit of Sunday afternoon drama after uh, after Enea won the race in Le Mans, which is the sort of comment you can only really make when you're a race winner. But um, then the other half of it is, I think that uh, Peko is, is um, <laughs> writing checks as ego can't cash. I don't think he quite has the ability to make those sort of demands of Ducati. Um, he's not Marc Marquez. He's not Valentino Rossi. He's not Jorge Lorenzo. Um, he's not an, even Andrea De Vizioso. Um Yeah, I, I think that Ducati... Could be, could be, but could not be, yet. But he's not yet, and that's the point. No, um, no. I think he Ducati will consider... Like, they, they won't completely dismiss him out of hand. They will take... Uh, what he has said on board, especially as everyone else in Ducati, I think, thinks in a similar way to 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 what he was saying about Jack as a friend, as a teammate, as someone he can work with, as a, a loyal Ducati uh, employee. But yeah, it, it won't be what makes the decision for Ducati. They're, they're far too mercenary for that. Uh, to add to that, I think Ducati really love Banyaya and, and have for, for a long, long time, even before he became this race-winning version of Pekka Banyaya, but I just, he can't have that pull right now. There's just, there's no trophy to back it up. That's, you know, it's as simple as that. Again, I'll reuse a joke from last week's podcast, but like, if Fabio Quartararo tells Yamaha to put his dad on the other bike, they might well do it. Um, Ducati... They they just they can't afford to. Uh, they know. I don't think he's making a demand. Like I, I we haven't we're not privy to the internal discussions, but I can't imagine Pecco is this brazen to say you know what put in Jack Miller or I don't even know what he can do because he's under contract. So there's not much he can do. 
But I do think that Ducati is well aware that Jack and Pecco work well together and that Jack has been a very loyal and useful servant who has already meaningfully aided uh, Pecco Bagnaia's two title chases last year and this year whenever he could. But they can't, they can't afford to lose Martin and Bastianini. And ideally, they probably would lose neither. Ideally, I think. Ideally, I think they put one on the work seat and the other on the Pramac. And if they keep Miller in the work seat, then both of those guys will have will have serious serious questions about their longer term prospects at, at Ducati. And I, I just don't think they can afford that. And I don't think Bagnaia can convince them otherwise. But we'll see. Mm, we will. We will. I think it's a fascinating scenario of uh, how. Ducati, Red Ducati, Factory Ducati are going to line up in 2023. Uh, I'm uh, quite interested in that. Uh, thank you, Ronnie. Uh, next up is our final question from a long way away. Good morning, gents. Sean here from Brisbane, Australia, even though the accent doesn't quite match. Uh, we're just after the Le Mans race. Um, the start of the race was absolutely nuts. It was carnage, overtakes, nudges, you know, Takanakagami even having a, a go, and he doesn't do that generally. Um, why? Uh, is it because Suzuki have just pulled the pin on next year um, and everybody's fighting for a job? It, that's kind of what I was thinking um, because that, that level of action, <laughs> I haven't seen it in a long time. So, uh, yeah, just your thoughts on that, guys. That threw me, didn't it? That accent's on the Gold Coast um, <laughs> threw me for a minute. Have we got any red herrings in here, do you reckon, Simon? <laughs> uh, are people vying for rides and people being more aggressive? I can't believe that, Val. Yeah, I can't either. Uh, this was designated as Simon's question, and before he answers it, I'm going to try to preview his answer by saying... The theory is that it's not because they're fighting for rides, but it's because they know that if they don't get the overtake done on lap one, it will not happen later in the race. Simon? Yeah, Val's basically stolen my answer. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I think um, it, it's the nature of the game at the minute. The first laps decide the the end of the race because more and more we're, we're seeing the end of races become somewhat more processional than they have been. Um, which is something I've written about this week over in the site, which uh, Juan Mir puts down to Aero, um, which others are putting down to uh, partially because of the front tyre pressure problems as well, although that wasn't as much of an issue at Le Mans as it was at, say, Hareth. But, yeah, I think that it, it's more and more abundantly clear that you need to be in a good position at the end of the first few laps. Um, look at look at Maverick Vinales and Franco Morbidelli for proof of this. Both of those guys have been running podium pace all year, but they've been qualifying badly, they've been starting worse, and then as a result, they're running podium pace outside the points in some cases. Um, so you you just, you need to be super, super aggressive in the opening laps. It's it's not particularly something new. There's a, a few people who are very good at it, like Joan Mayer, um, but I think others have realised maybe as a result of what Mir has done, that, that that's the only way to be really sharp these days. You, you just elbows out first few laps and see where the pieces land. Yeah, the, the reason I stole Simon's answer is because it's it's basically my answer too. I, I can't imagine the 
2023 thinking comes into it. I think it's just, you know you can't afford to hang around unless you're Bastianini on a Ducati, whose Ducati goes on a straight really, really quick. And Bastianini can clearly overtake, but most riders do not have that luxury. And there's just nobody who can really hang around. Um, I think you may, maybe overselling Morbidelli space a little bit this year. I think not quite, not quite. Like I, he can't overtake, but he's also just not been that fast, even on race pace. I think better, but not that fast. Vinales definitely. Vinales is the prime example of just getting stuck in the lower reaches and not being able to do anything about it, over and over again. So you you have to go mental in the first lap. That's just basically it. The, any position you can make up is a position you don't have to spend six laps desperately trying to make up later on. With the wrong front tyre pressure, yeah. Yeah, uh, Exactly. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for the, for the questions, the conversation starters. Uh, we went a bit deep on MotoGP Unlimited with Prime, didn't we? But uh, thank you for that question, Duncan from Glasgow. Uh, thank you for the chance for us to hear what you are wanting to hear about from our view of the MotoGP world. Remember, podcasts at the-race.com is the magic email to send your voice messages to. Yeah, I just, just wanted to add that it's it's been quite the experience listening to the questions and a, 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 like a, a deep pleasure. Really, really very pleasant that you guys listen and that you guys... Thoroughly enjoyed it. ...want to hear our, our opinions as a as a gangly desk jockey idiot from from russia it's it brings me so much joy thank you very much no thank you thank you val thank you simon uh yep for all of you listening line them up get them in next up for the grid though is Mugello, the italian grand prix a proper place of all places the racetrack of all racetracks at least in mother gp world it's in a valley it's in tuscany it's at the end of may the sun will be shining the main straight is along the bottom of the valley. The first half of the track goes up one side of the valley. It drops back down. It goes up through a blind series of corners onto the other side of the valley, and everybody's screaming. It's just fantastic. It's uh, it's brilliant, and we're very lucky to have a MotoGP race there. It's a proper job. By the way, give us a follow. We are the race, but also give Mugello a follow, at Mugello Circuit, because their social media... I think it's pretty good. Give them a follow because they, they really get into it. They really get behind what it's like to be a fan and they look at things from a fan's point of view. I think they do it really well. In the meantime, uh, keep in touch with the-race.com for all of your MotoGP news. And from Val, from Simon and myself, we look forward to Mugello. Speak to you after then. Bye for now. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.